Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Welcome back to the Women's Podcast. I'm Kathy Sheridan. Just a reminder that you can subscribe to our award-winning podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And you can always find us on irishtimes.com. If you do want to get in touch, we're on Twitter and Facebook at IT Women's Podcast, or you can email us on the Women's Podcast at irishtimes.com. Also, one does enjoy a bit of praise from time to time. So if you like what we do, then please do head along to iTunes and give us a review and tell all your friends about it. Before we get started today, I want to remind you of something interesting and rather lovely in the current climate. And that's that the Women's Podcast is partnering with the Body and Soul Festival, Ireland's most beautiful festival, filled with three days of music, art, culture and well-being. Taking place on the summer solstice weekend, June 22nd to 24th, in Bannonlock Castle in County Westmeath, this year's edition includes Fever Ray, Chronics, Arca, John Hopkins, who is playing live, Ireland and Wine, Baxter Jury and James Holden and the Animal Spirits. Head to bodyandsoul.ie to pick up a final tier ticket and be sure to check out the Irish Times programme on the Woodland Stage taking place on Saturday afternoon. There are brilliant talks planned for Saturday, including a live recording of the women's podcast called The People Have Spoken, which will discuss life in Ireland post-referendum. But what will they have said? Wouldn't we like to know? Now, back to today's busy programme. Later on, we'll be talking to former Sydney Rose Brianna Parkins, who you might remember, caused a national attack of the vapours during the Rose of Tralee Festival when she used her platform to call for a referendum on repeal of the Eighth Amendment. Imagine that. She's an excellent piece in the Irish Times today and is in Ireland. So she'll be talking to Roisin Ingle about why she's taking leave of absence from her job as a journalist in Australia to campaign for yes. But first... With little over one week to go until that referendum, which has consumed us for so long, many of you will have seen today's Irish Times Ipsos MRBI poll that shows the gap between the yes and the no side is narrowing. For those of you who haven't seen it, it shows that once the undecideds and the won't votes are stripped out, it now stands at 58% in favour of repeal and 42% against. However, and this is a significant however, that cohort of undecided stands at 17%. So without bamboozling you with too many figures, you will see that the race looks much tighter when you count them in. 44% saying they will vote yes on May 25th and 32% who say they will vote no. Our colleagues on the Inside Politics podcast, Hugh Linehan and Pat Lee, have done a deep dive on those figures. So if number crunching is your thing, then I suggest you give that excellent podcast a whirl once you've finished listening to us today. For the past couple of weeks and even months in some cases, canvassers have been working hard on either side of this referendum, going door to door in a bid to persuade the electorate of their side of the argument. We sent our co-producer Jennifer Ryan out with groups on either side to meet some of those people who have been giving up their evenings and weekends to do so. And she joins me now to tell me all about it. Hello there, Cathy. Good morning, Jennifer. Mm. You've had a busy, busy time. Yes. You are our (laughs) multitasker in chief, in fact. (laughs) Now, Jennifer, on Tuesday of this week, you went out to Sutton in North Dublin to meet the Fingal for Life group who are campaigning for a no vote. How did that come about? Did you offer yourself up or did they invite you? Well, I offered myself up and then they invited me. <laughs> so a little bit of badgering uh, on my behalf, but I finally got there in the end. And uh, I made contact then with a, a very nice woman called uh, Martha White. And she's been involved in running Fingal for Life for many, many years now. Uh, but she says they really got energised in their campaign last summer. And she invited me to come out with their group of about 14 to 16 volunteers. It was um, mostly women, um, mostly older women, but there was a very young woman, age 26, Aoife, who I'll talk a little bit about and also there was two men that I saw and I did speak to one of them called Tom but uh, uh, this is this is Martha herself and uh, she'll tell you a little bit about the canvas. 
I'm with Fingal for Life, yeah. right? And it's a group that was set up um, a few years ago, but really got going last summer. And we have a lot of canvases going in the Fingal area, and we're also in the North Dublin area. So this is just one of them tonight um, here, you know, but we have a lot of canvases going every week. Crowd. Is this typical? Yeah, we often have a lot of people come out, yeah. If you look at, you know, the pictures, there's often all around Ireland, there could be 14, 16 people coming out in a canvas. Um, how are you finding it? Uh, a few weeks ago, there was more undecided. People are now beginning to say yes or no. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of no's, you know. We're pleased about that. And we are hopeful. Mm-hmm. And then some people are definite yes. And we respect that. And we ask them would they like to take a booklet or not. And that's it. And then if they say no, we respect that, of course. So, Jennifer, apart from Martha, who sounds like a very busy woman and a good organiser and well able to speak up for the no side. You met a number of canvassers who were with her. Um, who were they? Yeah, well, the first person I met canvassing was married mother of three called Claire Rooney. And she actually very kindly picked me up from the train station in her car because, uh, sorry, I'm a south sider. I hadn't a clue where I was going on the north side. So Sutton was just like, may as well have been uh, Timbuktu to me. You're a disgrace. <laughs> I am a disgrace. And uh, I spoke to Claire while we drove around looking for the rest of the group and I think I actually made her get lost. She was talking to me for so long. But uh, she told me that she was campaigning to retain what she called our precious eighth because she doesn't believe personally that it is harming anyone. It's about rights as well. And my, my angle on the rights would be we have a very precious constitution and Article 40 does all the, the rights of the, the listing our rights. And why would we remove a right of a growing baby? Why would we do that and replace it with something political that the government may bring in legislation for procurement of abortion? May means, in my opinion, will be doing it, not they might bit of a confusion over the word may there so they might or they will and we don't know what that means but even for safety's sake would we not pause on that and think it through and I think the government ought to have done something else leave that eighth, that precious eighth because I do not believe it's harming anyone leave our precious eighth and give some extra support to pregnant women who are in difficulty or in crisis as it's called crisis and I think as regards pregnant women, of course crises happen. And that's desperately sad. But is the answer abortion? Uh, Claire's sincerity is beyond question. Uh, she clearly doesn't trust politicians. Um, she wants to hold on to the status quo, Jennifer. Mm-hmm. Um, and she just says crises happen. So, and they're the... Rubber hits the road, I suppose. So, Jennifer, another canvas you met in Sutton was a woman called Aoife, who was 26 years old and started campaigning with Fingal for Life late last year. She told you she goes out three times a week and it's an issue close to her heart. So she goes beyond the stereotype of the the older, dyed-in-the-wool, grey-haired person who's just can't move beyond Absolutely. the 1950s. So we have Aoife. Uh, what did she say are her reasons? Well, Eva told me that it, actually she's only 26 now, but a few years ago she probably would have thought that abortion is OK. Um, but she changed her mind in recent years and she put that down to a number of factors. She said that she had read much more into the issue ever since the referendum became something that would be on the horizon and what she read changed her mind. She also said that she has friends who come from single parent households and she didn't expand on that but that informed her belief as well and she also said that one of her friends has been adopted and that also impacted on her views. Another part of it was that she just simply hates the idea of abortion at all. She hates the impact of abortion on a woman's body and the idea that it is the ending of a a baby's life as she sees it. Um, And she says that while she understands that crisis pregnancies happen and how horrific they can be, uh, sort of like what Claire said as well, she believes abortion isn't the response, that there, there must be some other situation that can be offered instead. But the main thing I wanted to know was because of Vifa's age, I I wanted to know as a young woman, 
whether she found that many of her peers shared her beliefs and this is what she had to say to that. I mean, I guess, I suppose I've met a lot of young people from doing this uh, canvassing, actually. But yeah, I guess a lot of my peers would be in favour of repeal or people at the workplace. So it can feel a bit like you're, you can feel a little bit intimidated. You know, I wouldn't really, I'd never bring it up at work, you know, even though canvassing the evening, you know. Um, what can you do? I mean, I, I totally appreciate that they're coming from a place. Like, I, I can I see where they're coming from. You know, when I was younger, I probably would have, thought abortion was okay you know I would have thought well you know it's it's a woman's choice and stuff but I think as I got more informed on the issue I just I really I, I couldn't accept that anymore you know the reality of that so yeah I mean and, and I, I I always make the effort not to let it come between me and my friends or me and my family or whoever it is because at the end of the day like we're I would say like we're the one big human family but like when it comes to this it is very divisive and feelings do get hurt and you can get very upset and angry um so I suppose it's just like just trying to like have like a civil conversation about these things, and when it's finished, no matter what the outcome, whether you've changed your mind or not, and um, just continue like a good relationship with that person, and just kind of wipe our hands clean, and no, no, um, no offence meant, you know, whatever was said. So that was Aoife, who can feel a little bit isolated, but is yes. very respectful, actually, of the people on both sides. Yeah. Uh, she accepts that feelings do get hurt and um, longs for that relationships remain civil and decent after all this is over. And we can ask for no more than that, can we, Jennifer? No. Now, you met some <laughs> men who were out canvassing that night. I did. There were two men and... Uh, uh, Two men in Southern on the night, and I spoke to one of them who's called Tom, and he's 36. And he's been involved in the pro-life campaign since the introduction of the Protection of Life During Pregnancy Act in 2013. So that's when he got really motivated. He said he's always identified as pro-life, and he admitted that his faith, his religious faith, does play a part in that. But mainly it's because he considers the fetus in the womb to be a child. Simply, that's it. And I asked him, though, with all of those different situations that arise in life and crisis pregnancies and all that kind of thing. I asked him if he could ever see a point where an abortion could be the right thing to do. And this is what he said. No, personally I don't. Um, I know there is hard cases and we, we know they're well documented. And But I look at the women who some women have been through these cases, which I don't think they, their voice is being heard enough who are post-rape or have or babies who are actually born because of they were conceived in that situation. I just think that I think it's everyone deserves a chance and everyone should be equal under the law. So that's my. But I do on Scott. We do care about these women. Like some people try and portray us, we don't. We, we do really care about them. Like, yeah, like it's so because people might think that the, there's all this emphasis on a small unborn child mm. and less emphasis on the fully grown thinking woman. Woman, yeah. But I suppose where does that stop then? I suppose you go you go like there's there's people in hospital beds and like who maybe don't have that or there's, there's people out different abilities. And we see what happens in countries like in the UK when there's babies with disabilities, they're allowed all the way up to full term. That that's I don't do that. We, we had a referendum only there a couple of years ago with equality and what's more equal than having including all and to take a, a human right out of the constitution where progressive is usually bringing people in, where this is where actually taking personal and in such an extreme bill that's coming out, like that all protection will be gone. I just, I just can't stand over that, you know. So that was thirty-six-year-old Tom, who thinks that it could be the thin end of the wedge, Jennifer, and doesn't think we're hearing enough at all about the hard cases that have somehow persevered. Um, there was a lot of mention, actually, of the the floodgates. If this, what next? A lot of people felt that 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 was what was going to happen. And that was their, their greatest fear. That is the bottom line for mm. them uh, yeah. as to where this could, could go in the end. Mm. Not necessarily what's happening now, but where it could lead. Yes. And I because the, the vagueness, not actually knowing what's going to be legislated for, as they see it, this 12 weeks figure is a problem. OK, well, you spoke to another woman who was told 15 years ago while she was pregnant that her baby would not live, only to be told at a later scan that the baby would survive. Unfortunately, she did lose the baby. Why did she tell you she's campaigning in favour of saving the eighth? 
Yeah, that was Breda. Um, Breda sadly lost her baby at almost full term 15 years ago and she was really very emotional telling me about it still all, all these years later and just shows the impact of it, of, of losing a child. And as you said, she had been told in early scan that her baby wouldn't survive and the consultant then had said to her, well, you've no choice. There's no option in front of you. And she said to me that was very shocking and it was very upsetting, but you know, she had to continue with the pregnancy. And as it turned out, she was later told there was a chance that her baby might survive. Though, as I said, she did then go on to lose that child. She said she was walking on the beach one evening like that on Dolly Mount Strand and she said, I just don't feel pregnant anymore. And lo and behold, she went in and the she had a scan and the doctor said there was no heartbeat. And so that was devastating for her. And uh, Breda told me, though, that for her... It was actual healing through that process and to go through with the pregnancy and go through with the birth and everything that came afterwards. She actually felt that that healed her personally of her loss. And uh, that is why she thinks the eighth should be retained. I feel so grateful. I feel so that's I see the pain of the women who have gone to England you know, to, to have a termination of a, a baby who they were given that shocking diagnosis. And I feel so sorry for them because I think if only you had the chance to see the pregnancy through, something about nature, even the piece about giving birth, going into labour, I had heard sometime way back when I never was interested in being pregnant that, that labour in itself gives, gives expression to the grief. It's a, a mad idea, but it did. I went through a labour, gave expression to that profound grief. And then bringing her home and having a wake and the neighbours coming in and having a funeral and the neighbours, two of my neighbours were in the National uh, Symphony Orchestra and they played and all of that. Like, they remember it still. I asked them, you know, why why does nature give us babies that aren't going to live? You know, it's a, they still have a contribution to make, a profound contribution to make. Jenny, it's no wonder Breda is heartbroken mm. and still sounds heartbroken yeah. all these years later. Does she have a sense, though, that women should have a choice about this? I didn't get that impression from her. I think she sees the Eighth Amendment as being an integral part of the healing process that she went through. And I think she would believe that that is how it should be, that it's precious, it's precious to the Constitution. Right, Jennifer, let's talk about one last person you spoke to on the canvas in Sutton. Yes. A doctor called Ashling, mm-hmm. who has worked in general practice, has several years' experience working with people who become pregnant as a result of being sexually assaulted and says that none of those she has worked with has harboured feelings of regret about carrying their babies to term. None. Yep, yep, that's what she told me. Ashing felt really strongly that abortion is a crime and it should remain so. And she said that she went into medicine for one reason, one reason only, to save lives and not to end them. And she felt that many doctors would be ethically opposed to carrying abortions out if the referendum is passed and they would be legislated for. So I presume, Jennifer, you got the impression that rather like a couple of the doctors on the Claire Byrne uh, debate, that they will not treat women who come in looking for the abortion pill and they will not refer women to other more sympathetic doctors. Yes, because uh, as you'll hear in this clip as well that I have of her, she says there would be an element of feeling complicit in it by referring them on. My main passion, I suppose, for the canvassing and for, for this referendum is that I just feel, for me, it's every life is precious um, from the moment of conception until, until death. And I just, I have really feel that abortion is, it is the intentional killing of a human being. And I feel that that is ethically and morally wrong. I went into medicine to save lives and not to end them. And I just, I, I, I just feel that if people really were aware of how horrible abortions are, if they could see videos of what an abortion, first trimester, specifically second trimester abortions are, which if abortion is legalised in Ireland... You know, um, this could be uh, occurring. It's just, it's so horrific that I honestly believe that so many people in Ireland would vote no if they they could just see the the destruction of human life. And for me, that's one of the main reasons that I'm 
canvassing. It's just, I feel, and I, I've also know people that have worked in the UK who've had to, you know, assist or be present at abortions and how some people have actually changed countries, have come back to Ireland because they just actually couldn't stomach it anymore. Well, Ashley has, has um, interestingly, given a view that we've also heard this week. Um, she talks about the intentional killing of a human being. Yeah. You can't argue back against that. Um, and she also talks about second trimester abortions, which, as we know, would be very rare yes. and are very rare mm. and only had under exceptional circumstances. But overall, Jennifer, what was your impression of the evening? Well... My feelings on it are that actually there is a real cross section of people out there who are anti-repeal. And personally speaking, that was something that I hadn't really thought of before. You heard from those clips. I spoke to young people. I spoke to older people, some people who would say they're in the middle. Um, And the main thing that stood out for me from the evening is that each of those people that I spoke to felt that there was no situation at all where abortion would be acceptable. Many of them acknowledged that there were crisis pregnancies and they're they're tragic and they had great compassion for those or what are being referred to now in recent weeks uh, as the so-called hard cases, but they felt that there was always a better way. Um, I brought up the topic of abortion pills and the fact that women and girls are taking them in Ireland every day and also the fact that we will continue to export the problem if the referendum is defeated. And the response I got to that was that, well, the government needs to invest in providing supports for the women who find themselves in those situations. They very much felt that it was uh, it was the government needs to provide supports, whatever those supports may be. Uh, the worry among the anti-repeal side, from my experience of that night is that is about what will come after the 8th is removed. They have honestly held fears that whatever is legislated for if the referendum is passed will inevitably lead to abortion and demand and for them that's simply something they just cannot accept and that's why they are canvassing for retaining the 8th. You were also out of the Yes campaign, Jennifer. Uh, Where was that? Yes, uh, it was a couple of weeks ago It was absolutely lashing rain, freezing cold in the evening and I met a crew from Together for Yes just on the outskirts of Dawkey Village in South Dublin. So you're back in the south side. Back in the the salubrious surroundings of Dawkey Village. But there was a big group of about 16 or 18 or so, mostly women, but there were a few men in there too. And my experience was a little bit different to the night um, with Fingal for Life in that I actually had a chance to hear some of the conversations that the canvassers were having with voters on the doorsteps. So what were some of the things you noticed? Well, something that jumped out at me early on was the level of undecideds. Granted that this was a fortnight ago that I went out with them and judging by our poll in today's paper, that cohort has somewhat decreased. But there were a lot of people saying that they just didn't know which way they were going to vote. And uh, one of the canvassers there on the night was Sinead Gibney and you might remember her name because she was formerly the head of the Irish Human Rights and Equality Commission. And I asked her how what her best technique was for reaching out to those people who are on the fence. I think we all have to talk to people. We all have to talk to the people in our own lives. I think that's really, really important and not make any assumptions about how the people in our own lives are voting. So our friends, our parents, our relatives, uh, make sure that we, we ask people. So I think all of that is really important. Um, and I, And get involved with your local group as well. I mean, you know, People are intimidated, I think, a little bit this time around, perhaps more so than the marriage equality referendum, to get involved. But you'll be partnered up with somebody who has experience and it's really invigorating and it will help you feel like you're doing as much as you can, uh, which is a comforting feeling at times. It can be hard going, but it's, it's really worthwhile. So, Jennifer, Sinead says, make no assumptions, which is one of the mantras of my life, actually, in all spheres. <laughs> uh, another canvas you spoke to was Aoife McLeisacht, who is also a familiar name. She's a Trinity College academic. Yes, Aoife explained to me that uh, she's always been pro-choice, but probably passively so until the death of Savita Halapanavar. And that was the first time that she went out to protest for abortion rights, uh, joining people who gathered outside that huge vigil um, outside the Doyle uh, soon after she died. And she described to me how she engages with people on the doorsteps who still haven't decided which way they'll vote. 
Well, I've had uh, I had two of those this evening who I felt I had good conversations with, and that's kind of a good day out, actually a good evening out, because it makes it worthwhile if you even have one of those conversations. But I try to be very honest with people. I don't make promises, you know, that I can't uh, keep in the sense that some people are concerned that um, there'll be what they might call like a, a flippant flippant abortions by people who aren't thinking and are casual about it and you know I say to them yeah I can't promise that won't happen but I don't know many women like that I don't know women who would take this decision casually Um, I think it's a very big thing to do and it's not something people see as an easy option instead of contraception or anything like that but mostly I talk to them about um, that in Ireland as it stands during pregnancy a doctor can't look after the health of the woman if that means um, interfering with the pregnancy in any way and um, so a woman could be left totally debilitated and I just feel that's really wrong. Aoife also spoke to you Jennifer about coming up against people on the no side who are less than friendly. Yeah she spoke about a couple of experiences that she's had when she's had abuse hurled at her while she's been out leafleting and how it impacts on her mental health but also how it contributes to the worry she has about whether the referendum will pass or not. It feels really hard because it feels like they don't see you as another human being in a certain way because from my point of view I'm standing there saying please don't let me and my friends die in pregnancy and they're shouting back these kind of aggressive um, insults and I kind of feel like, I was like, don't you see what I, all I'm asking for is, you know, uh, quality of life and, uh, and proper health care. And um, they think they, they I don't know, it's like suddenly every woman is a harlot who is looking for an easy form of contraception as if as if an abortion was an easy thing to do in any circumstance. So, yeah, it gets to me. And I feel myself um, lately with this kind of background level of anxiety that I never normally have because I'm just worried about how this is going to go I'm worried that it might not pass um, even though the polls are positive but I you know I don't believe anything until it happens yes and and things have changed you know during a campaign things can change and and there's still a few weeks to go so things can still change so I'm worried about that I'm worried that if it does pass, maybe not by not much, then the government doesn't have the strength to bring in the legislation they've currently proposed, and um, you know that we end up with something quite regressive still, and there's still a fight to happen. And um, yeah, and I worry that somebody I know will be hurt, and I or even somebody I don't know. So canvassing is not easy, Jennifer. Another canvasser you met, Dara McClatchy, who's been involved in abortion rights campaigning since she was a student and worked with the Women's Information Network. But she told you she hasn't really been to the forefront of campaigning until she joined together for Yes. Yeah, what, d- what turned her around? Yeah, Dara told me that she she just decided that she didn't want to wake up on the morning of May 26th and think that she didn't do all that she could possibly do. So that's what motivated her to get out and canvas. And she said that she agreed with uh, Dr. Peter Boylan's assertion that what this campaign comes down to is whether you want legal abortion or illegal abortion. And that's how she explains it to people on the doorsteps. She says it's, it's, it's pretty stark, it's pretty black and white. And I, I asked her how she put that forward to people who have really, truly, honestly held moral beliefs that abortion is wrong and how can you kind of make them feel better about it and she said well you can't really um, I'm not sure that you can actually because I think a lot of them are quite frightened and I think uh, I, I suppose because I don't understand their fear I don't understand their fear if that makes sense it just because it's not a logical position to me um, you know I suppose all you can say is abortion is not going to be forced on anybody it's a, to me it's a medical um, conversation between a woman and her doctor and it's, 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 no one's going to be forced to do it. Um, I think that, you know, statistically, I was reading a very interesting statistic. I know people get bored by them. But in countries with liberal abortion regimes, the number of abortions is 34 per thousand population. In countries like Ireland, where it's at the moment only available in really restricted cases, is 37 per thousand. So the reality is, the more liberal the abortion regime, combined with proper sex education and access to contraceptives, abortion rates come down. We don't have a low abortion rate in Ireland. 
and there is the opportunity to bring it down. So I really don't think there's anything to fear. We are never bored by statistics in this <laughs> studio, Jennifer. Especially correct ones. Especially correct ones. <laughs> and ones that have not been distorted. <laughs> Another campaigner you spoke to was Ruth, who's a 31-year-old midwife. Why is it that she decided to go knocking on doors in favour of repeal? Yeah, Ruth is a midwife and she says it's the first thing she says to people when she meets them while out canvassing. She's worked at both... Uh, in Ireland and abroad and she says seeing the difference in women's healthcare in other countries compared to Ireland is a big motivator for her when knocking on doors. Um, just in the last six to eight weeks um, I have I was sitting at home and I was getting really worried about like what the referendum was going to like what was going to happen and things like that and I would march normally with midwives for choice and things like that but the um, I was just very worried about what way the referendum would go. So the best thing to do is get up and get out there and, and just spread the information and things like that. And, and I suppose coming from my background, and I'm a woman as well, and I'm a woman of childbearing age, it very much resonates with, with, with me. And kind of, I think about it on a daily basis. People ask me as a midwife, do you have any kids or things like that? Or would you have a baby in Ireland and things like that? Like so, But I've also worked abroad in the UK and in Australia, and I've seen kind of what what way there is a need, there is a need for abortion and termination of pregnancy in, in, in circumstances and things like that. And I've just seen how it can be so different here in Ireland. But also I've seen how the Eighth Amendment is actually used against women during their pregnancy for, for reasons that people don't know about. I've seen that women being taken to the High Court the day before their due date because they disagree with the way that an obstetrician actually wants them to deliver their baby, even though that they're well-informed. They've had a previous cesarean or two previous cesareans at fully dilated and they want to try and have a normal natural vaginal delivery and the obstetricians are like no and they're like well why am I being taken to the high court the day before you know this kind of a way and it all and the eighth amendment used against them so those are the examples like of things other other than the issues that are coming up in the referendum that I have seen personally myself in Ireland. The canvas in Dunleary Rath down in South Dublin has been run by local council Melissa Halpin. What did she tell you about the experience in that constituency, Jennifer? Yes, Melissa is a, a councillor for People for Profit in Dunleary Rath down and uh, she was my point of contact on the evening when I went out to Dawkey and I, I ended up chatting to her quite a bit actually uh, as we went door to door. She kind of let me go around with her and uh, she said there are good nights and bad nights but that constituency is likely to go yes. Uh, I think it went uh, against the amendment in 1983 way back when. But uh, she told me that she feels there is a real understanding for the yes side in working class communities in particular from her experience. Well, Ballybrack, for example, was uh, a great, a great evening out. And, you know, Ballybrack would be a very, we did all the council estates, be a very solid working class area. And it was interesting to see that when you, people who were unsure of was it, was it yes or no, but when you said, surely it has to be up to women to decide what they want to do, people relate to that. People have a sympathy for that immediately, we found. You know, and it's not everybody, you know, but certainly the vast majority uh, of people that night were on our side on it. And yes, the, and I think the fact, that, the fact that it is a reality in Ireland, you know, and people know that, that people are either travelling to England or they're taking abortion pills, and they would prefer that to be happening properly um, uh, looked after here in Ireland itself, you know, and that people can feel they can ring their doctors if they're taking abortion pills, you know, rather than feeling they're doing something a little illegal, a little bit uh, something to be ashamed about, you know. That's an interesting perspective from Melissa about the difference between working class areas and middle class areas. Jennifer, it's not the first time we've heard that. But... The evening ended sort of, I presume, on a relatively cheerful note. Well, it stopped raining as soon as we stopped canvassing, of course, <laughs> which is always destined to happen. But, you know, sort of takeaways from it um, were that of those who answered doors, most people engaged in some way, um, though there were a few who would just wave the canvassers away. I didn't observe anybody being particularly rude. Um, but as I had mentioned earlier, there were a lot of undecideds and that was the same when I was out with Fingal for life. And I was told in Dunleary Down that uh, this is the case across most of the constituency. Um, the most common thing that the canvassers seemed to bring up on the doorsteps was the situation that uh, 
that abortion is happening in Ireland anyway and that by voting yes to remove the Eighth Amendment it means that abortion can be regulated here because at the moment it's not and that did seem to resonate with some voters who were undecided. Um, a couple of sort of anecdotes from the night which I, I got were, uh, you know, a number of the doors that they knocked on were answered by small children uh, or little ones that came bounding up uh, to see who their parents were talking to and from what I saw though they were mostly yes houses. Um, older women also seemed to be supportive. One woman answered the door wearing her repeal jumper uh, so I think and <laughs> her point was clear. She said she was having supper with people at the time and they were only just discussing the issue as uh, the canvassers had knocked on the door. I also witnessed older men pledging their support too. One of them said, sure, you've got to go with the women, haven't you? I thought that was pretty funny. Um, one older man, and this I think is probably a, a good indication of what it must be like most of the time for the canvassers. One older man chatted to the canvassers for a good while and he said from the outset that he just really did not know how to vote, that he had some real concerns and the canvassers spent a long time chatting to him, answering questions and explaining to him why they believed um, he should vote yes and what it would mean. And he said he'd think about it. And I think that kind of sums it up. So it's all about the undecideds now, Jenny, as you noticed out there. And thank you to everybody who participated in this. Yeah, I want to say a big thank you to both sides as well for being so accommodating because I know it can't be uh, easy to allow a, a journalist among the ranks, especially one that has a voice recorder. <laughs> Indeed, it's not. And to all the heroes and heroines who are canvassing for either side, because that's the coal face of this campaign, hats off to you all. Now, you will all remember Brianna Parkins, the Sydney Rose, who caused a national gaffe during the Rose of Tralee Festival when she used her platform to call for a referendum on repeal. She came into the studio today to talk to Roisin Ingle about coming back from Australia to campaign for Yes. So we have Brianna Parkins here in the Women's Podcast studio. Um, and for anyone who didn't hear, but I'm sure you all did, let's remind herself of why she made the news in a tent in Kerry in August 2016. You're also a campaigner for women's rights, focusing on domestic violence. I am, because in Australia we just had our funding cut for domestic violence shelters. So we're having women who are being turned away on a nightly basis. We're having women sleeping on police station floors. And uh, it's just not on, and I think we can do better. Mm -hmm. And I think we can do better here in Ireland. I think it's time to give women uh, a say on their own reproductive rights. And I would love to see a referendum on the 8th coming Mm -hmm. up soon. That would be my dream. Brianna Parkins, we are so delighted to have you here in the Women's Podcast Studio. Um, we first came across you in August 2016 when, to the shock of the nation, uh, you you called for a referendum on repeal the 8th. And here we are, nearly two years later and a week away, almost a week away from a referendum on the repeal the 8th Amendment. So first of all, very welcome. What's it been like for you since? It's been a very different experience coming back not as a rose. So I'm not wearing a sash. I'm not being bussed around to events. Uh, so, you know, it's slightly disappointing. I wanted to, you know, I did have a bit of a welcome. Uh, the Mayor Rose came to the airport with a sign that said, welcome home from rehab. So, <laughs> That's nice. <laughs> there are still signs of support out there for me, which, which is which is really lovely. Okay. Thanks, Fiona. So you have taken time out from your job. You're a journalist with um, ABC? ABC. So your RTE is, is okay. Australia's ABC. So. And you've taken a leave of absence to, to, to come here to work on a Yes campaign, which is quite a big deal to do. It is, uh, considering that some of it's unpaid leave. So. Um, but it was difficult, I think, being a journalist. Uh, you know, you want to remain as impartial as you, as you can. You wanted to stay, you know, outside of the topic of the day. Um, but I felt this is really important because I had been so active on it two years ago. My family's Irish. There are women I love who are Irish. Um, so I felt it was necessary for me to take time off and to come over and sort of finish what I what I started, really. And just give us your Irish credentials for anyone listening to your lovely Australian <laughs> accent. You know, you do have proper ones, so just lay them out there. So my mother is, uh, she's Irish and her family are from Dublin. So my grandmother's from the Five Lands. My grandfather's from the Liberties. Near where I live, can I just tell yeah. you? Yeah. Yes. So we're, we're, so half, we're mule children. We're half North, half South Dublin. And yeah, very proud to come from the Liberties as well. And what do your family think about you coming over here for this? Uh, they think I'm slightly mad. Uh, my they parents, thought that anyway, though, probably, did they? They thought <laughs> when I was doing the Rose of Truly, I think they were more surprised about that. Like This is sort of more natural. Like, oh, yeah, that, okay, it makes sense now for her to be yelling about something. <laughs> 
to do with women's rights than it was, you know, me wearing a tiara. So they're less shocked this time, I okay. think. Um, tell us about the situation in Australia, because I think mm. people will be interested. Is it is abortion legal? How, you know, how easy to access is it for women all over Australia? So it's a state-by-state state basis. So different states have different laws. Um, up until a couple of years ago, the Northern Territory it was completely illegal. Queensland, it's illegal, but you can kind of get it if you sign to say that your mental health will be severely impacted. Basically, you're saying that you already have a mental health problem. Um, in Victoria and South Australia, it is it is completely legal to access. They even have laws designed, um, they're called exclusion zone laws. So protesters can't get within 150 metres of clinics down there. So they've got the most progressive laws. Where I'm from in New South Wales is, it's still in the criminal code, um, but it is, it's not prosecuted. So hospitals can't provide it. It's only available in private clinics, so Yamari Stopes clinics. But the problem with that is just because it's legal doesn't make it accessible. So the starting price, which is a medical, so the, the taking the pill for a miscarriage, if you're quite early on, is still $400. Now, that's $400 to hand over a pill, which I understand costs about €4 Euro here. Um, and that's because you need to have doctors sign off, you need medical supervision, they have counselling services. So quite, it's quite strange when people say abortion on, Australia has abortion on demand because you can't just walk into a doctor, slap your hand down and say, I'd like an abortion today, please. You know, it's quite um, a built-up process. And if you live outside of the city centres, you could be travelling up to 12 hours. Australia is a massive country. Um, if you're a young girl, particularly a young Indigenous girl in a remote community with no cash, no readily available cash, your chances of having an abortion or having an access to abortion is probably less than you are in Ireland. I mean, it's what, what a one-hour flight, one-hour ferry ride away. Yeah. Well, um, a bit more on the ferry, but yeah, more on, the on the plane than area. So compared to a 12-hour drive to a different state. So there are parts in Australia where abortion is harder to get than Ireland. Yeah, and it's interesting you mentioned the the Indigenous uh, young women as well mm. or older women because um, here, I suppose, the, the people who are affected the most are the people who a, don't have passports, don't have money, mm. don't won't be able to access it. Even if they you know, wanted to go to England, they wouldn't be able to afford it or they wouldn't have the documents to do it. So there are people that just can't access it Yeah, they're unfairly disadvantaged. It's Ex- definitely exactly. almost a class thing, socioeconomic access. Um, if you don't have cash, you're basically stuffed. Right. Just before you read your piece, you have a very fine piece in the Irish Times today, which I- I'm delighted to say. And the headline um, is very attention grabbing because the headline is, Yes, Roses of Tralee have abortions too. Okay. I should say Rose Entrance of Tralee, but we, you know. No, but we shorten bush. things. You know, yeah, you know yourself, do. journalism, we have to cut out words. Yeah, entrance in, doesn't sound very good. <laughs> no, but it's a roses. And you're a yeah. Sydney rose. And I think Once a rose, always a rose. Once a rose, always a rose. But you do talk about in this piece, which you're going to read for us, about the kickback you got. I mean, the fact that you were threatened, there was various things because of you you mentioning reproductive rights on the stage of such a traditional sort of, I suppose, old fashioned um, contest. People, some people really didn't like it. What was the response in terms of the negative response? I remember at the time thinking that it wasn't, you know, didn't, I didn't think it would be this massive deal. Um, I thought, you know, it might be a bit controversial, especially given that, you know, the Rose is not typically a platform for these things, but I was really surprised and, and taken aback by the level of hate directed at women who, and it's mostly women, and uh, who express any kind of, even my, even though I thought my my reference was quite benign, I just sort of asked for a referendum. I didn't march out there and say, you know, all women should have abortions. Um, just the level of hatred and the really vicious comments I was getting and quite gender specific comments. Like I still don't know anyone, any man to this day who's been threatened with rape for, for their opinion. Um, so it was just, it was quite galvanizing actually. It made me believe more in the cause and it made me go harder basically because I thought there are women out there who can't do this the way I could. There were roses with me intrally who wanted to have a say on these things but who were afraid and they've actually apologised to me saying, look, I'm really sorry I didn't say anything at the time or I didn't say anything in public. But they had so much more to lose. I could get back on a plane and go home and, I mean, I couldn't forget about it because of the amount of emails and Twitter trolls coming after me. But it's not the same as having the whole county look at you and people point at your family in the streets and and also fear for your family safety. I did get threats against my family. It would be much more terrifying if they knew where I lived in, in Ireland. 
So, yeah, but I think I, I, we have to also counter that with the fact that there was an overwhelming wave of there support was. for you too. And um, you became a bit of, a, I think, for, for appeal campaigners, you became a bit of a hero, a heroine, whatever way you want to say. And here you are running around town. I know you're doing some kind of special events today. And one of the things you're doing is you're, you're attending the launch of Hear Me Out later on. Um, it's a day of personal action because on the 20th of May, uh, these people from Hear Me Out are calling for a national day of mobilisation and solidarity to repeal the 8th. They're saying, put the kettle on, start a conversation, send a letter, an email or even a text asking a person in your life to hear you out because there's so many people undecided on the issue as the, as the poll in the Irish Times today shows and there's many who are voting no and uh, Hear Me Out believes that through gentle conversations and sharing stories they can be helped to understand the compassion, care and dignity a yes vote will afford the women in Ireland. So you're going off to that launch. Conversations are just really important in this, aren't they? Conversations are massively important and I think, I didn't realise this at the time two years ago, but I think when I came out on the stage, uh, especially in the Rose of Tralee, people started talking about it in their in their living rooms. They had to say, you know, kids are asking or young women are talking about what's the referendum, do you remember the first referendum to their parents? Um, I think conversations are going to be the decider in this election. Okay, well listen, we're delighted that you're here um, and you're going to read out your piece that's in the Irish Times today. If anyone wants to see it in print, they can go out and buy the Irish Times but we're very lucky to have you here so take it away there. Once a rose, always a rose the Sydney Rose, Brianna Parkins. So to start off by saying that the first thing absolutely happened, it happened on the weekend. I'm sorry to the young man who's ended up in the Irish Times unwittingly this <laughs> Can morning. Can I just say, I love the way this article starts because it is a Brianna in a nightclub, a sticky, sticky floored nightclub, harassing a young man who says he's going to vote no. In fairness, he <laughs> came up to me, started chatting me up. It's his fault. <laughs> A sticky-floored late-night venue in County Mayo would have once seemed an unlikely place for intense conversations about reproductive rights. But now, even at 2am, people seem happy to lay their cards on the table on the topic, thanks to the impending referendum. I suddenly feel very sorry for the boy standing in front of me. He seems lovely. Nice haircut, offers to buy me a drink, not wearing bootcut jeans, has the makings of take-home-to-meet-the-parents material. He has told me, I'm voting no. But what would you do to change my mind? He winks. I draw a big breath, pitying this poor bloke who is about to cop a good 20-minute serve of statistics and studies instead of a shift. He doesn't know anything about me except that I have an unfortunate taste for Jaeger bombs and I know most of the words to Wagon Wheel. Yet his vote would count as much as mine if I had one. But I would be the only one dealing with the outcome. It's not anyone's fault, only one of us owns a uterus. So I ask a question instead. If I came home with you and I got pregnant, would you make me have a baby that I didn't want? No. So what happens? He pauses. I don't know. His answer is the reason I came back to Ireland after my women's rights party piece at the Rose of Tralee Festival in August 2016. It's the I don't know dilemma. The murky middle between I don't like abortion and it's wrong to force women to have babies when they don't want to or can't. That gap looks like making abortion illegal but not making it illegal to travel for one. The problem is offshored. Someone else's issue. We shrug and turn away. We leave it to mainly women to deal with, quietly, not causing a fuss. In my experience, Irish women are exceptionally good at getting up and getting on with it. Whatever life hits them with. This is a sad use of that gift. Some of the best getting up and getter honorers I know are Rose of Tralee entrants. Yes, roses have abortions too. A tiara does not make you immune to a crisis pregnancy. Since I called for a referendum in a tent in a Kerry car park, women have told me their abortion stories. Some I've known for years, some I've never met. The roses who have had terminations come from all over, from postcard Irish counties to conservative US states. Some had their abortions before becoming roses, some after, one during. Some have gone on to have children when they were ready to. Some wanted to say something when I did and apologised that they didn't. They felt they couldn't talk about it at the time. Still can't. Maybe never will publicly. They are right to be cautious. I can tell you the consequences of talking about the issue of abortion at the Rose of Tralee were hard and fast. At one end of the spectrum, it was being called ugly. And at the other, it involved graphic details of how I would be raped. I don't want to think about the consequences would have been for someone talking about actually having one. 
My mum and my grandma carried the sacred tradition of getting up and getting on with it to Australia. Because I was raised by these benevolent dictators, I grew up thinking that to be an Irish woman is to be tough. To be able to put up with a lot. When I was in my peak teenage shithead stage, I clashed with my parents, particularly mum. The Australian girls were allowed to sleep over at parties and to have boys stay in their rooms. Most Irish girls were not, and some still aren't, at the age of 30. It wasn't because my mum wanted to ruin my life and didn't want me to have any fun, which is the rationale of my 16-year-old self. She was protecting me. She knew that being an unmarried teenage girl, pregnant teenage girl, was not a thing that you wanted to be, particularly for Irish women who remember laundries and boats and judgmental towns. So it is also for her that I have come back to the place I was warned to stay away from, to finish what people weren't happy about me starting. For my grandmother, who didn't have a sex education or contraception, for my great-grandmother, who raised 15 children in a tenement, for the Roses, who are too afraid to talk, for my friends and family who are here, for myself when I return to live here, for daughters I might have in the future. The stories of women's suffering trump all the red-faced men debating on TV, cherry-picked facts and tit-for-tat Twitter arguments. We have asked Irish women to deal with the I don't know. They have been getting up and getting on with it for too long. They deserve apologies. The best way to say sorry is to make sure it doesn't happen again. Brianna, it's a wonderful piece. And my mother has macular degeneration at the moment, which is um, a problem with her eyes. She can't see very well. It's it's very distressing for her because she's someone who reads a lot and reads the Irish Times every morning. So what I've been doing is sending her what I'm calling the morning briefing with articles that I know she would love to read that she can't read anymore. And I sent her yours today. I didn't read it as well as you did, but I, I sent her an audio. Oh, I sent her audio clips of me reading articles from the paper. And I sent her that today and she just sent me an email back and she said... What an amazing woman, tear in my eye. And um, my mother's not a m- as much of a wuss as me. So that's that's kind of <laughs> something. But uh, it really is wonderful. Thank you for writing it and thanks for being here. So you've lots of plans. Um, there's some kind of thing happening today apart from the Hear Me Out thing? That, yes. Can so you talk about it or is there it a will surprise? Be, there will be a surprise, or not so much surprise, but there will be a flash mob. Um, Amnesty Ireland are, are planning a sort of choreographed demonstration um, this evening in Grafton Street. Hopefully, I haven't seen a flash mob for a while. I thought I, they'd kind of gone out of fashion, those we're things. Bringing, we're bringing it back. <laughs> Hopefully I do it in time. I'm a bit uncoordinated, so we'll see how I go. Well, that will be funny anyway. It'll be entertaining. But um, maybe a final message for listeners. Um, we're really glad to have you here because you're someone we've been keeping in touch with on the podcast over the last couple of years. Um, and also a big thanks to the Irish Times. And the Irish Times have been a massive supporter of mine and they actually believe that a rose could write her own article. We are delighted to, to host you and uh, and good luck with all that you're doing over the next, I think it's eight days. Not that we're eight counting. Eight days to go. <laughs> um, anyway, Brianna Parkins, thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having me. And just a reminder that if you want to get involved with Hear Me Out, you can go to the website, hearmeoutmay20.com and... It's about on Sunday, just having those conversations that you've been maybe putting off because you've been afraid. But the best thing, as Brianna said there, is just to chat to people, hear their concerns and let them hear what you have to say as well. That was Roshi Ningle talking to the effervescent Brianna Parkins about her campaign for Yes. And you can read our excellent piece in the Irish Times today. And that's it for today. Today's podcast was produced by Roshi Ningle and by Jennifer Ryan. With JJ Vernon on sound, I'm Cathy Sheridan and until next time, thanks for listening. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.